The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Hey there, geeks! Feeling down with the news that San Diego Comic-Con is cancelled for 2020? Have no fear! Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, is here. That's right, we're filling the void in your comics-loving soul with a bonus episode you won't have to wait in line for days to be a part of. This ain't no Hall H, this is Hall W, baby! And the more the merrier. So stop by our booth! Leading the panel tonight in between trips to the booths with actual comic books that are getting harder and harder to find, I'm Adam. And I forgot my lanyard at home, but you can trust my face, Mr. Security Man. I'm Michael. You know, conventions are a place where memories are made, and this year... Unfortunately, memories are all we have, so we decided to bring you San Diego Comic-Con 1992 as presented in the pages of the first Wizard Special Edition magazine. So, if you'll recall, the very first issue of Wizard was originally offered to the public at San Diego Comic-Con, so it's only fitting that they return to the scene of the crime and put together this special issue. And we're going to get to the contents of that magazine shortly, but speaking of those convention memories let's open up willie lumpkin's mailbag In preparation for the show, we went out to our listeners on social media to tell us about their favorite comic convention memories, and here's what they'd have to say. At Sean Robert says, There's that time when Todd McFarlane's pal, Al Simmons, who used to go out to conventions dressed up like Spawn, called me fat because I asked him to sign a can of Spam. In fact, that can of Spam got me into a lot of trouble that year. I found it in the con suite and took it all around to have it signed by all sorts of folks like Mark Bagley and Glenn Danzig to Jim Steranko and David Prose. Yeah, so that's pretty exciting there, getting all those signatures on a can of Spam that is a great use of what I assume was in the mini-fridge. Like, I'm trying to understand what uh, hotels are stocking Spam, Sean. And how much would they charge that? Yeah. (laughs) If you take it out of the mini-fridge, what would that be? Yeah, it's like $10 for a bag of peanuts. So, yeah, what are you doing? But I just love that Glenn Danzig was there, you know, lead singer of the Misfits, and a dark rock star in his own right. I've seen him recently in concert. But the other side of this... This is so Al Simmons, for those who aren't deep into Spawn, that was Spawn's alter ego's name. Todd McFarlane named everybody in that book initially after people he knew in real life. I mean, he named the daughter in the book after his own daughter and the wife after his wife. And so this Al Simmons guy, he actually said, yeah, why don't you come to the shows, dress up like Spawn, and people will be meeting the real Al Simmons. So, but the fact that this guy was uh, not being nice to Sean, who is a very nice guy, and poking fun at his weight, not cool Al Simmons. It is pretty funny. I, I vaguely remember that he did name the character characters after people that he knew i forgot about that fact that's pretty cool 
Next up, at Revenger Lamar, Lamar the Revenger, I really like the small convention I go to, RetroCon. The one that was the biggest was San Diego Comic-Con in 2001. Preview night was incredible. Mark Silvestri took my picture with the top cowgirl, and I got his picture also. My first comic fest in 1993 was in Philly, where this happened, and it's a picture of him with a guy in a full Captain America outfit. I'm assuming it was maybe the official? Because if not, it's a pretty good costume for 1993. So that was pretty good. But yeah, in uh, Lamar, I have attended RetroCon multiple times myself. I wish I didn't live on the West Coast so I could get out there more often. But yes, that is an amazing convention. So much fun to be had there. What state is RetroCon in? Pennsylvania, just right outside of uh, Philadelphia. Yep. And our guest from last week, Stephen, at Stephen Staples 81, in 1994, I went to a comic book book convention in the back of a fun zone and found a copy of Fantastic Four 381. I spent every dime I had on it, but it was worth it. In 2001, I met Adam West and Frank Gorshin. Since then, my best memories are taking my kids to Terrificon every year. And what's funny is if you've watched his hot and nerdy pilot, that's exactly the comic book convention that his characters are going to. They go into like this family fun center and they walk through a door and there's like this back room and that's where the comic convention is happening. <laughs> It's a very good pilot. Check it out. You can find it on YouTube. And speaking of past guests, at William B. West, when I worked San Diego Comic-Con for Diamond Distributors back in 2007, I pretended to smoke a cigarette to flirt with a well-known actress who was taking a smoke break. I think she even commented on how I didn't inhale. I'll give this hint. She was in a series based on a comic. I did not get confirmation. I think it may be somebody who had a very large part as a supporting player in all the Netflix Marvel's Defenders series. She's been around a lot of comic-based films and TV series, so we'll see. Maybe someday Will will let the cat out of the bag. I'm interested. we got to get him back on the show to tell us now. I'm curious. That'll be the entry fee. You want back on, Will? you got to spill the beans. Give us the dirt. (laughs) But now, we're going to share some memories of our own, because we're Con Men. So, Michael, I know that you are someone who gets to attend conventions much more than I do. For me, it's been very few and far between in my life. So the memories I do have are like these precious moments, not to say that yours are not awesome as well. So I'm curious as we kind of get into this, what was the first convention you ever attended? So the first one was actually New York Comic Con. They called it number four. They didn't even give it a year in the Javits Center in New York City. Around 2005, I have the lanyard somewhere. I have to find it somewhere in my basement. I'm going to pull it out and we'll post it on Instagram when I, when I find it. But it was actually really, really cool because it was so small back then and, and nobody really knew about it that my buddy Pete and I were able to get four-day VIP passes, which they were selling. Basically, the way it worked was you had this VIP pass where it gave you your own kind of like dressing room, changing room. So if you're wearing cosplay, you can go there and change in private. 
Yeah, it was really cool. And then when you got into the main room, which is nothing like Hall H and the Javits Center. I mean, it's very, very small, and that's hence why they kind of grew out of it after a while. But the largest room in the Javits Center, we had front row VIP seats reserved for us for all four days, which was really pretty amazing. And the tickets at the time were like a hundred bucks for four days. It was crazy. We got to see the actual, do you remember the first animated Wonder Woman movie? Oh yeah. With Carrie Russell. Yes. So we got to watch that movie in its entirety in that room during that weekend. Nick G came and gave us previews to Terminator Salvation when it was pre-rendered. Uh, it was really cool looking. And then when you watch the movie after the fact, you're like, this movie looked awesome. Like how could it possibly not been so good? Cause it was so beautiful when we saw the rendering of it and we also what was really really unique we got to see the first 45 minutes of up before it released in theaters was this a direct feed to your private room or was this just in all the front row seating that you had this was in the vip room that we were able to go to so you're like there was maybe 40 or so seats or 40 or 50 seats that were vip and you got to see all these special things and then they had other things where they let people in but you couldn't stay the whole time and watch the entire event event we were able to stay and see everything and just be in the room all day long from start to finish and then we would go around and we'd buy posters we'd meet people and you had a place to put all your stuff i mean that's the best part you don't gotta lug around a bag or a backpack everywhere exactly hang up our jackets and stuff like that because new york comic-con was in march and then after that year they moved it to october it was freezing cold so everybody had like really heavy coats so we had this VIP room where we could put our stuff, and it was secured, and there was a security guard in there and everything, and we would go back at the end of the day, grab our coats, and we would leave, and, we, and we'd stay as long as we want. We were the first people in. There was no lines to wait. We just showed our badges and went right in. It, it was an amazing experience. It was so cool, that very first one. Your turn. What was your first experience? Well, see, I, I'm surprised that mine was so much earlier than yours, but I was lucky enough in 1997, for my one and only time, attend San Diego Comic. And I just had a buddy who I collected comics with a junior high, Brett, and he was like, hey, my mom's going to take us to Comic-Con. Do you want to go? And we were freshmen now at high school, end of our freshman year. So we're like, I was like, yes, I got to go to this thing. You know, I've, I've always heard so much about it. And I just remember the enormity of it all because that whole convention center is gigantic. You walk in that room and you're just like, wow, it's endless. There's so many things to see. And I remember the thing that surprised me the most, I don't know why, was just how many t-shirt booths there were so there just be these like giant like it felt like they were like 15 20 feet high these racks that were just like covered in t-shirts you know of every superhero or comic book character you could think of in addition to all the cool booths that the real high-end either publishers or movie studios or whoever had set up for display and so yeah i mean it's a much bigger situation now but that, that was a fun experience just walking around for an entire day you know, just getting the most out of it. No, that's all. That's pretty cool. I've, I've never been to San Diego Comic Con, so I'm all I'm jealous just hearing that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get in now. I know, like, my sister-in-law, she could get, like, a press pass, and that's how she would be able to go every year. But yeah, but otherwise, I mean, you just gotta, a lot of times, get on a waiting list and hope they don't fill up before it gets to your name or number. So, yeah, it's a big deal nowadays. But, you know, the thing about these conventions, a lot of times, especially that first experience, you know, the, the memories are so vivid. Now, you obviously got to see all those movies, see all that firsthand, but a lot of times there are panels, right? So 
there's there's these discussions with creators and artists and whoever else celebrities so i'm just curious do you have a favorite panel so to go back with your question about you know why it was so much later for me i could never convince any of my friends to go to any like the small ones we'd have around here because they weren't really as into comics as i was and that's why i kind of i have one buddy that lives in new york city and he and i go to all these things together that's kind of how that worked out but so not this year, but the year prior, uh, I went to New York Comic Con and my buddy Pete, he and I went into the panel for the Reign of the Superman movie preview and he won me a poster. All the artists and voice actors signed it. And it's really, really cool. I have it here in my, my office. It's pretty awesome. Uh, that was a really cool experience. From early panels, honestly, the really the coolest thing was when when we got to see the Wonder Woman movie. I was like, wow, this was it was unbelievable that it was an animated film. And we got to see all the actors talk to us, and they told us all about it, and that, that was really cool. Um, was Nathan Fillion? I think he was Steve Trevor in that one, wasn't he? I'm pretty sure. I don't remember if he was at the panel or not, but I I remember Kerry Russell was there. He might have been there actually. I'll have to look and let you know. I'm not sure, but honestly, the first time I was there, what was really really cool was because it wasn't as popular, you could get really close to actually talking to the creators, and I got to like briefly speak to Jeff Johns. I talked to Tony Daniel. Got Gary. Frank's autograph in, in a book, and that was really, really cool. I'm a big fan of his. I met Peter David for the first time there at that time. Those are really, really cool experiences. Want to hear a funny story, though? Yeah. So at that first Comic-Con, they didn't have groundbreaking celebrities there. I think one of the biggest ones they had was one day Hulk Hogan was going to be there. Oh. And the morning started off where his signing was like $25. By middle of the afternoon, it was like $75 or $80 for Hulk <laughs> Hogan. And I was like, yeah, I don't need Hulk Hogan's autograph that badly. But a year two later when i went uh william shatner was there and he pulled the same thing where it started out his autograph was like 35 40 dollars by the end of the day it was 150 dollars and i was like how could he be raising the price during the day that's what i was gonna say is that common listeners tell us if you've had that same experience at a con because yeah i've not heard of that either and then that same year they had the entire cast of star trek there all of them were lined up and they were all doing signings and uh, i got to see Jean-Luc Picard in real life, which is pretty cool. So it's the whole Next Generation cast. The then. whole Next Generation, yeah. They're all there. In the past recent years, the, the thing that i kind of been a little bit bummed out about with New York Comic Con in particular is they've made it very much about like The Walking Dead. It's changed in the way that it was when it was those first two or three years that I went. It's a very different environment now, but I have some cool stories from newer stuff as we go further into it. Yeah, I mean, it definitely changes. You know, when, when I think about my favorite panel experience because like you know at, at other conventions i've got to have seen like somebody propose to somebody on stage like they had written they had set it all up with the guy who was leading the panel and random stuff like that but the one that always stuck out to me from that first san diego comic-con experience was there was a panel for space ghost coast to coast do you remember that show on cartoon network of course i do <laughs> i love space ghost i'm back <laughs> anyway big fan of that 
that show. So my friends and I were like, yeah, we got to go to the Space Ghost panel. So we went and they showed like the pilot episode, you know, like the pitch reel that they put together initially when they were trying to sell it, Cartoon Network and all that. You know, they had cast members there, did the voices and the writers and everybody. But at the end, they gave us a sampler CD and it was for a musical album called Space Ghost Coast to Coast Musical Barbecue. <laughs> and it's literally like on the cover it was like them like Space Ghost has an apron on with a grill, you know. But it was just like a bunch of like goofy skits and the the full album came out later and that had like 38 tracks on it. I think the one they gave us had like five or something. And I hung on to that for years and I don't know what I did with it ultimately. I, I probably sold it to like a used CD store at some point. But I wish I would have held on to that because I, I don't see it on eBay. I see the, the album for sale but that promo copy is not around so I'm sure it's worth a little bit for those old school Cartoon Network fans but that was just a fun panel again because of the the humor and the fun because I, I remember also that year there was Starship Troopers was going to come out and so they had a panel for that movie but I hadn't read the book I didn't really know anybody I don't believe Neil Patrick Harris was on that panel it was just like Dina Meyer and Casper Van Dien and Jake Busey you know so it's just kinda, eh, these guys are up and covers you don't know who they are they're still up and coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have a question for you. Where's the furthest you've traveled to go to a convention? Well, that would be RetroCon that was mentioned previously. Because, yeah, like I had to literally fly across the country. So I always have to plan. And what I do when I'm getting ready to ready to go to comic-con my wife's always like okay you have to fund it yourself it's not coming out of our bank account so i like <laughs> sell old video games i sell like a bunch of collectibles and then a i get a here or there yeah, yeah. <laughs> get a couple hundred bucks together and then i head out there luckily i have a cousin who lives in new jersey so i stay with her they're so awesome they lend me a car and i drive myself to the convention it's a pretty sweet deal when time allows you know and there's not a uh, new babies being born so of yeah. late i haven't been able to go but how about you in 2010 i went down to florida to megacon in orlando with with joe who was on a previous episode and that was a really cool a very very different dynamic than new york comic-con or some of the smaller conventions i've gone to around here there's a uh, eternal con and there's like a i've been to a couple of sci-fi conventions and stuff like that in new york but megacon was very much just focused on the comics which was really cool and i got to meet dan didio and and I met Jim Lee in a panel. This was right before the New 52 was going to happen. And, and they were teasing it a little bit and giving you some ideas of what could be. We got to see... Uh, was Grant Morrison there? I, I think he was there, and he was talking about like his run of Batman as it was coming to a close, and we had to see that. That was pretty awesome. I was like, wow, Grant Morrison is here? That's, a, that's crazy. Because Joe lives in Tampa, so I flew to Tampa, and then he and I took his car and drove across Florida to Orlando to go Road to Megacon. Yeah, it was a good time. I got a lot of cool memorabilia and merch from there. That was fun. Well, that's what I was going to ask. So, like, you know, when you think about going to a con, a lot of times it's either about some people are hunting down the con exclusives. Some people just happen to find something awesome they didn't even know existed at a table. And you're like, wait, what? Or they got to fill some holes in their collection. So what is, like, maybe, you know, one or two of your favorite con purchases? I mean, have you gotten a con exclusive? item before i've got quite a few yeah <laughs> more than I'd, my wife would like to know <laughs> but i was really looking for when i was heavy into buying funko pops i wanted the green hornet 
and I found the Green Hornet, and I got that. I was really, really pumped about that one. Oh. I, I bought a couple of Hot Toys. Do you know the, the Bowen design statues from oh, yeah. Marvel? Do you know who Miracle Man is? Of course. Miracle Man is one of my favorite indie obscure characters, and I was searching for the Bowen's design statue for a very long time, for years, and I found a really good one at a Comic-Con, at New York Comic-Con, and I was like, how much is it? Okay, I don't even care. Here's my cash. Just take it. <laughs> I've, been, I've been waiting long enough. That was one of my biggest favorite gets. Here, take my money. <laughs> well, take- I mean, that's that's the thing about the going to a con, right? Is like just the, the sheer amount of merchandise, and you're gonna find the group that has what you want. I mean, there are. I mean, there's the people who have just like you know three spaces wide full of the Funko Pops, or three spaces wide full of statues. Like it just there's the people who like that's their specialty, and you can, you know you can find it there now. For me, when I went to the con in 97 in San Diego, I had just gotten into Kiss. And last episode, everybody found out, yes, Adam's a huge Kiss fan. So for me, when I went there, you know, I had some money in my pocket and I didn't know what I was going to buy. I was like, is it going to be comics? Is it going to be a toy? What's it going to be? And I get there and in the program that they give you right on the inside cover was an ad for the Kiss McFarlane Toys action figures. I didn't even know they existed. And I was just such a KISS fanatic. I was like, okay, I have to find these. So like now <laughs> the rest of the con is like, we got to find the McFarland booth. Where's the McFarland booth? And so I find it. They had it decked out. It was a pretty cool setup there. And I dropped, I mean, I think they ended up probably all together being like 50 bucks for the four because I had to have the whole set. You know, so it was 50 bucks in 97. That's a lot of cash. But they were like the first run of the figures. Like they had a special number stamped into the box not just like printed but it's like on the the card back wow. and so i was carrying those around with me the whole day because i think i got those pretty early because that was like my first destination now i took them home of course i opened them because i built a stage for them in my room and i had them on display i had gene simmons hanging from my ceiling literally like he was flying up to the rafters because he does that concert you know so i love those i eventually bought another set of the later editions kept them in the packaging but the thing i didn't know is you can often find bootlegs at a con and so i ended up getting a bootleg kiss concert which was their first show of their reunion tour which took place in my hometown a year before i became a fan really yeah so that was their first time back together in 15 years with the original four members so i got that video and i love that video i still watch it to this day because they released an official version of that show in their kissology sets but they edited it down there was a pyro thing that exploded and caught on fire during that show like there were a lot of screw-ups and they cut it all out the bootleg edition has it all which is great and also speaking of bootlegs i managed to get a copy when i went to phoenix comic-con of the generation x TV movie on Fox from 1996 on DVD because I already had VHS that I recorded off of television, but the DVD copy was the uncut unrated version from the UK so I had cuss words in it. <laughs> and if you folks at home are keeping count, we've referenced this particular show quite a few times, so just like you're doing with the Robin Todd hype machine, you should keep track of this reference <laughs> to this show a few times. The X-Tally. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. 
was there anybody at a Comic-Con that you wanted to meet really badly, but for whatever reason, you couldn't meet them? At a con of probably like, what, maybe nine years ago now? My buddy, I was living in Phoenix at the time, and he's like, hey, my girlfriend is working security for Stan Lee at Phoenix Comic-Con this year. And I was like, oh, could she get me an autograph? And he's like, maybe, you gotta go to the show. And I just, I couldn't work it out to make it to that con that year. And I was so bummed. So I was like, I could probably have gotten in front of Stanley for a minute because I could have just called the girlfriend and be like, okay, where are you guys going to be? Catch him on the walk-in or whatever it is, you know? So that was kind of the one that I really wanted to do that. And I just, I couldn't make it work. So the year that Adam West died, he also made an appearance at New York Comic Con and he made the appearance on Sunday and I had Friday and Saturday tickets and missed oh. them. That was a bummer. That was a major bummer. Because what what they do with New York Comic Con, which really really is annoying nowadays, and anybody who's ever been will know, is so they sell the tickets in April, May, June. They don't release the schedule or who's attending until like late August, early September. So you might have bought tickets for Friday, and then you're going to see that some big celebrity is going to appear on Saturday, and they're only going to be doing this signing. And now they've spread it all over New York City, so half the panels are at the Javits Center, half are at the Garden, oh, half wow. are at like, one of the, like, the large ballrooms in the city and, and places like that, so it's all over this. Like Kevin Smith does his show or his thing at, like I think it's either Roseland Ballroom or Starland Ballroom, whichever one's in New York City. But you have to like go way uptown for that it's it's a real mess now because it's the the convention has outgrown the javits center that it's just too it basically encompasses the entire city or at least the you know midtown and up which is really annoying yeah that's an ordeal now i will say i have had run-ins with celebrities that i did not plan and they ended up being kind of awkward like i remember at the, the san diego comic-con david hasselhoff was there and at this point in his career obviously he had baywatch going on but he was actually appearing to promote the nick fury it was like a major tv movie right yeah exactly and so he was playing nick fury but he was there and i just happened to walk by as he was obviously getting ready and he was behind a booth and he had this kid by the arm and he was like, you better behave. We got in. He was chewing out his kid because the kid was like throwing a, a fit. You know, he's having a tantrum and Hasselhoff's putting him in his place. You know, so I was like, oh, it was Nick Fury, agent yeah. of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> he was letting out the Fury, I'll tell you. And then the other time was my friend wanted to get Tia Carrere's autograph. Swing. And she had a short-lived show that nobody probably remembers, but it, it was a Tomb Raider ripoff called Relic Hunter, where she was basically you know, an Asian Lara Croft. And while they were waiting in line, like, okay, Tia's going to take a break. She's going to go. And my friend's mom is just a real shrill kind of lady. And she just, no boundaries. And so she just starts nagging Tia Carrera. And she's like, oh, no, Tia, Tia, come on. He just loves you so much. Can we just get an autograph, Tia? Please, Tia. And like, just like following her following her and she's like fine fine and she gives the autograph and then keeps walking and then she's like thank you tia <laughs> it was just <laughs> and it was so embarrassing to be in that group you know we stood a few feet away while this is all going down but my buddy is just like ah oh, mom <laughs> but he got the autograph 
Yeah, I mean, and on the flip side, I've mentioned it before, so I won't go into it, but meeting Mike and Laura Allred at the Phoenix Comic Con, they were fantastic. They were so nice. The sad part was, is I was reading all their comics at the time, right? And I found out in their letters section, they're like, our house caught on fire while we were at Phoenix Comic Con. So while I was talking to them, their house was burning down. That was such a bummer to hear. And I'm curious because there's this documentary coming out about him. I'm curious to know if they cover that at all, if it was like a major monumental moment or not. And that's happened to a lot of comics creators, by the way. Like that happened to Eric Larson in the 90s. I remember that coming up in the letters page. You comic book creators, check your electrical outlets, whatever it is. Make sure you're playing it safe. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> but do you have a favorite outside? Because you mentioned a lot of awesome people you had run-ins with. Was there anybody in particular that you're saying, like, you know what, that was so fulfilling. Like, I actually got to have this conversation with somebody I admire or respect. You want you want to laugh? Let's hear it. So did you ever watch Dexter on I Showtime? I didn't watch it. I'm aware of it, but I never watched it, no. So the woman who played his wife on the show, she did a con at Stony Brook University one year, Julie Benz. And I was a big fan of her because she was also on Angel and Buffy, and I liked those shows back in the day. And so I get the DVD of Dexter, and my wife and I went to go meet her. This was a couple years before we got married, even. And I go and I hand her to sign the box, and Dory goes, you're giving her the box of the season she was murdered? I was like, (laughs) yeah, but it's awesome. She goes, it's a good season. That was pretty cool. And it was just funny to talk to her about that. That was, and we kind of had a good laugh. Other than that, like, really the coolest conversation I had was, um, he's, he's a newer comic book artist and he's one of my favorites right now. He's a young guy. His name is Jason Fabok and he does some of the biggest events in DC. And he and I talked for a really long time couple years ago at comic-con that was really cool also i got to meet very very briefly i got to meet Haley joel osmond a couple years ago he was promoting future man on yeah i watched that on hulu yeah i love that show and i got to i got to talk to him briefly afterwards and you would be amazed at how many people would walk by and yell out i see dead people too man i see Uh, dead people too and he just was like he just kind of like shakes his head and i was just like dude i'm a big fan you know i think you're really cool and you're hilarious in the show and he's like thanks dude and that was the entire back and forth conversation that was kind of cool and it was was just so so funny because i'm I'm just like talking to the guy and all these other people are just screaming that out i'm like wow this guy must hear this all the time i'd be like i hate to have that happen to me did you see his his role in the boys on amazon yes because he basically plays himself if he had lived in that universe based on that. Anyway, it was just, it was really interesting how they played into that. I thought that was pretty hilarious. All right. Well, those are our con stories. But like we said, we're going to take you back in time now to 1992, to this convention. And I actually bought the uh, San Diego Comic-Con program. It was the 23rd annual San Diego Comic Convention. And I thought we'd look at a few of the highlights here. The first thing I'll just mention, you've seen this cover here, Michael, but the cover is a Norman Rockwell spoof. It has basically got a kid on rollerblades with a backwards baseball cap, wraparound reflective sunglasses, and a 
bath towel safety pinned cape on. I mean, you can't get more 90s than that. It's hilarious. We'll definitely post this on social media so you can see it because it's just like, wow. It's a pretty fantastic cover, though. I mean, like, it's it's very telling of the time because rollerblades were huge back then. Everybody wore a backwards baseball cap at that time. I mean, I was notorious for the backwards (laughs) baseball cap at that time. I like the art a lot. I think it looks really unique. And this is featuring a kid, basically, and just some generic hero behind him. And I I like that a lot. Yeah, and I think this is cool, too, because Dark Horse has bought out the entire back cover. And it's like, welcome to sunny San Diego, home of comic convention mayhem. Win a car, get a (laughs) tattoo, meet celebrities. And I think it's hilarious because they're like, this at the Dark Horse booth where you could enter to win an official OCP Detroit car used in the filming of RoboCop 3. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wanted that after they saw it. But I thought it was pretty great because they even say stop by the Dark Horse booth to get your free tattoo. And I'm assuming this was a rub-on tattoo of their logo. I hope but so. <laughs> if not, that'd be really interesting as you get your favorite artist to uh, sign your arm and then you get a tattoo. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of which, so they had a bunch of famous creators and artists that worked on Dark Horse books, right? So they're talking about you can get autographs from John Byrne, Chris Claremont, Dave Stevens, who created The Rocketeer, Tim Saul, uh, Dave Gibbons, obviously of Watchmen, Frank Miller, Steve Rude, plus uh, Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti. They are always together. You never see Joe Casada alone, hardly. It's always Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti, at least in these early days of their careers. Everything they did was together. But also what I found really interesting is inside the Comic-Con president has an introductory paragraph, and he mentions that San Diego Comic-Con is a non-profit corporation that, quote, the registration fees go towards putting on a better convention for you, the fan, not into someone's pocket. There is no way it is a non-profit corporation now. (laughs) No way. Not a chance. It it is for profit. (laughs) For as much profit as they can possibly make. And what's interesting about this program is it's all printed in black and white, except for these glossy full-page ads in the front by Malibu Comics. So they're talking about their protectors superhero team, which nobody cares about. But then they have these image ads for Shadowhawk by Jim Valentino and Cyberforce by Mark Silvestri, plus some random Tarzan series they were producing. But, you know, it's just like full color, full color, and then the rest of the book's black and white. But this was the coolest thing. So I started flipping through it. My book has autographs from lots of Batman creative folks who were working on books at the time. So Klaus Janssen, what did he work on, Michael? Did he work on, was it year one or was it... Yeah, it was year one, right? Yeah. Yeah, Batman year one. Carl Kiesel, who I know did a lot of Batman art back in the day. Alan Grant, who was writing Shadow of the Bat at the time. I love Shadow of the Bat. That's one of my favorite 90s Batman story arcs. I love that thing. And so I I got like all those autographs, plus Bernie Wrightson, who co-created Swamp Thing and drew Vampirella in the 70s. Stan Sakai, who created Usagi Ujimbo. And then this one random one is this guy declaring himself, quote, the youngest guy on the page is what he put above his autograph is this guy named Craig Flessel who worked on DC Comics in the 30s according to his biography and he did stuff like the original Sandman he did all the covers for Detective Comics before Batman became the main feature because obviously at that point that it was all done by Bob Kane uh, allegedly <laughs> allegedly but I just thought it was interesting there's this guy he's like I was there 
too. <laughs> I didn't work on anything you care about, but I was there. And then they have a whole list of guests of honor. So Bob Kane, as we mentioned, was there. Francis Ford Coppola is there. Clive Barker. Kevin Eastman, one of the creators of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Jack Kirby. We're going to get into him a little bit later. Ray Harryhausen, you know, famous stop motion animator. Van Williams, speaking of the Green Hornet for the Green Hornet TV show, took out a full page ad. Meet Van Williams. Get his autograph. <laughs> and then even Julius Schwartz was still around then, you know, the former editor over at DC. And of course, Todd McFarlane, you could meet him. And surprisingly, though, none of the other image guys were directly advertised. So I didn't see Jim Lee's name there. I didn't see Rob Liefeld's name there. I have a feeling they made an appearance, but maybe not officially. Now, I'm sorry, was this book like the official, you know, when you go to a convention now, you get some sort of like a magazine pamphlet. Was this the what they were giving it? What we're talking about here, that's a good clarification. This is the official San Diego Comic-Con convention program. So th- we're not getting into the Wizard Special Edition yet. Yeah. So so it would list who was going to be there. That's interesting that it doesn't have any of the other Here's image guys. Here's the thing, listed. though. So so it has a few bios that they list as guests of honor, and a few of them are the ones that I read, but it doesn't actually have like a full listing or a map or anything of like the actual events. There's no schedule of panels. There's nothing in this. And I was like, huh, did they have a separate booklet? Because really, the majority of this book is art. Like, it's filled yeah. with artwork, just art contributions. Like, I sent you a, a Spider-Man scan, you know, because it was the 30th anniversary of Spider-Man in 92. Yeah, it's a beautiful scan. Yeah, it's a it's a great piece of art, but do you notice Spider-Man's pelvic region and its positioning in that photo, Michael? <laughs> He's doing the swing. It, it is a little suggestive, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> the 90s were the era of the pelvic thrust. They were. Uh, also, there's a section devoted to 25 years of independent comics. So they had like a huge section of all these indie comics with an X, by the way. Artists, so a bunch of, you know, just random stuff. Again, we've talked about that neither of us were super into that scene. But the big event of this thing was this was the 75th birthday of Jack Kirby. And so they have a huge art section and it's where there's the most like ornate and beautiful pieces stuff. People like John Buscema, Alex Toth. And in addition to, they have just like a random art section and Bruce Tim has put in a picture of two face that he drew. It's a very cool picture. And it's, it's very noir. It's, it's, it's like it came out of, you know, what would have been a comic book for the animated series. It's beautiful, I think. It's really, really yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's not exactly the simplistic style of the series. It's, it's definitely more nuanced, so it's pretty great. And then, just for the perspective, they have an in-memoriam section. So, Bill Gaines, the publisher of Mad Magazine, had passed away that year. He also did EC Comics, you know, the infamous horror titles. Dr. Seuss had passed away that year, and Gene Roddenberry. So there were a lot of, like, top-tier creative people that that passed away that year. Also, very interesting, a guy named Todd Lauren, and I don't think that's a name that anybody knows, but he created rock and roll comics, and if anybody has ever seen these back in the day, it would be like Metallica, Kiss, you know, Def Leppard. Like, they would do these biography comics, but they were unauthorized. They never paid for the rights. There's actually a whole documentary about rock and roll comics 
politics and the mystery surrounding Todd Lauren's death. And there were all these like underhanded business dealings behind the scenes. So you, you guys should check that out. Seek it, seek it out. This documentary about rock and roll comics. Cause it's, it's kind of lurid and strange. Interesting. Yeah. Among the last things here, just as you talk about like the big publishers and their boots, obviously we've been talking a lot about Valiant the last few episodes and the one thing that they say in their ad is anyone who cosplays as a valiant character will earn a free copy of eternal warrior number one <laughs> that was like their new big book that they were trying to say it was like you know everybody's gonna want to get in on the ground floor on this so that was like a big deal so i just thought it was funny i'd like to know if there was anybody cosplaying as solar exo man or some are easier than the others the harbinger kids would be a lot easier <laughs> if if somebody could could cosplay as Exo Manowar in 92, they deserve that prize. That would be a tough costume to make back then. Speaking of Valiant, I just remembered I do have a Comic-Con exclusive Funko Pop of Faith from Valiant at a booth that they had at New York Comic Con, and I like that one a lot. I've sold a lot of my exclusive Funko Pops off over the years, but that one I kept. I don't know why. It just looks cool. It's it's got a different kind of sticker than I've ever seen, and I I just think it's kind of neat. And speaking of faith, we're going to get into that in a little bit, because that character has uh, meant big business for some valiant collectors. But also, Marvel obviously has a presence there, because Stan Lee and Jack Kirby are at this convention, along with a whole host of marvel writers and artists that are promoting but what i thought was funny you talked about shatner earlier it says william shatner may be there to promote his tech world comic and because it's in parentheses tentative (laughs) so he did not commit to anything but marvel was publishing a tech world comic so maybe he's like i might show up i know a thing or two about convention uh but my favorite is that they also tell you that the toxic crusader and no zone from the toxic crusaders comic and cartoon are going to be there so obviously people in costumes but i would have loved to have gotten my picture taken with them that would have been the highlight for me and then uh also lobo was like the poster child for this event i didn't scan a whole bunch of it for you michael but like in the art section so many artists drew lobo even for the jack kirby birthday wishes lobo says have a fragging good birthday jack kirby jack kirby's like i don't know who lobo is who are you kids <laughs> But he was on, like, official t-shirts and sweatshirts and tote bags, and it was Lobo, and it had the saying, I kicked butt at San Diego Comic-Con, where the frag were you? Not like he was new that year. He came out in 83. So I wonder what was going on. Yeah, but I mean, like, he was, that, that's when he was on fire, though. I think, like, 91, 92 is when Lobo exploded. So everybody loved him. I mean, you even see it in the art section. There's always a Lobo cover that the wizard fans are drawing up. That's true. But now I think it's time we get into this wizard special edition magazine. So this is really interesting, Michael. This cover. I sent you a picture of it. What can you tell the folks about this cover? This cover is kind of interesting. So it's the trifold that said, Wizard, the guide to comics. Finally, a book you can judge by its cover. So that's the interior design. If you wanted a wizard banner, you could put that up on your wall, put that up in your comic shop. But the cover design on the front... Cover is image characters it is savage dragon uh that nighthawk character exo man of war <laughs> you can tell how many image comics michael has read here yeah. because only one of those characters is accurate <laughs> yeah 
Oh no, Spawn is there. They, they all, it's a cool looking cover, but they all kind of blend together, and I forget which. Also, it is 12:35 in the morning here in New York, folks. Just so you know, and I've been up since 5 a.m. because my children get up at dawn. <laughs> But th- what's interesting about this cover design is Garib Seamus said he was talking to Jim Lee, and Jim Lee's like, wouldn't it be cool if we each drew our own character on one of your covers? And then they decided to make it this, like, three-sheet fold-out cover. So each of the image made characters is in profile, and each artist drew each of their own characters, which is very cool. But also this issue, staying in line with current trends, the magazine was polybagged with two wizard trading cards that recreated the cover image when you put them together and they have this like prismatic border on them and stuff so that's neat i have a working theory about wizard at this time just go with me for a second wizard has revolved in the first nine issues that we've covered plus this magazine as well plus issue 10 i'll go into that you know, when we get there, they've revolved a lot around this formation of image and the artists and writers for image in particular with Rob and Todd. I'm very curious if at the time when they were a fledgling company, they couldn't get the access to Marvel and DC that they would have liked to. And they just were able to find a niche with image and kind of gravitate to them. I don't know if it's because it was just such a cutting edge thing that new to the time that it was a new book, a new company, the whole thing. Well, yeah, I mean, I think they, they were just going where the hype was, ultimately. I mean, I think they were just going, like, because fans were rabid for Image. That was just what everybody was excited about. But I, I really think it's just like, hey, we're in on the ground floor with this, and this is what people want to read about. This is the news everybody cares about. So we're there. You know, like, we're going to be the ones to bring it to you. And I think probably the image guys saw them, yeah, as kind of this startup. And they're like, you know what? Yeah, let's talk to them. Get in, and we're all in this together. They're going to give us lots of space because they want to fill their new magazine. So... But what's funny is, like I said, the Comic-Con program did not contain a floor map or the listed booths available to visit, but the Wizard Special Edition does. It's got all that in it, so ultimately you needed this if you wanted to get around that day, as far as I could tell. I don't know if they gave it away or if they sold it. I have a feeling they were selling it if it's got all that image stuff in it, you know? The the booth listings here, I'm looking at it right now, yeah, all the booths for the, the different companies that are there and stuff like that yeah yes you would and according to that like the majority are comic book retailers like it's actually amazing to see how many were listed just as a comic book seller and so i i think that's a pretty low representation these days at a con is that your experience michael you'd be very surprised actually so in my experience in particular at new york comic-con yes they have a lot of vendors selling t-shirts and whatever memorabilia but there is an entire wing of the Jacob Javits Center that is just dedicated to comic book retail sellers. And they have to pay a boatload of money to even get a booth. And they, they set up and they basically sell their stuff they would have sold in their store. But usually it's like, like a promo code or they get a discount. Maybe it's 10% off or whatever. And they have a lot of their exclusives to basically unload their inventory. Because if you go to a lot of comic book stores, they carry a lot of inventory and it's hard mm-hmm. to move some of the older stuff. So they go to the conventions to push out a lot of their stuff to clear out the shelves. 
And I could tell you right now, you know, in the Javits Center, there's probably at least 10 or 15 rows of just companies that are just selling comics and other stuff from their shops, at least. That's a pretty good deal. I mean, I like that. I like to hear that that's still going on. So, Because I know in this particular map, the company that had the biggest space was Mile High Comics. And Mile High Comics is always advertising themselves as, like, you know, the largest selection of comics. And so they had, like, three or four booths just next to each other. But let's get into some of the content here, Michael. The first article up is Face Front True Believers, an interview with Stan Lee. Stan explains that in the 60s, he was the writer of all books when there were only 15 So he could keep track of the continuity. But nowadays, that would be impossible without the editors. He is very excited about returning to writing comics part-time with Ravage 2099, stating that it was a character name he had been holding on to for years. There was even a Ravage 2099. There was even a Ravage 29 enamel pin for sale on the opposite page of the interview, available for just 6.95 plus shipping and handling. Shipping and handling was a big thing back then. Anytime you, saw, oh, it's just you know, it's 6.99 plus shipping and handling. Get your mom and dad to say, okay, guys, they'll, they'll sign for it. Don't worry. I just think that's fun that he, you know, again, for those who don't know, Stan at this time and for years had not been writing comics. He would occasionally do like a Silver Surfer graphic novel or something, but he was working on developing television shows and movies. Stan also explains that he thinks Jim Shooter's idea for the new universe was good, but by keeping it completely separate from the original Marvel universe and placing it in the real world, he lost the current Marvel fans. Stan states that 2099 simply takes place farther into the future of the current Marvel continuity so fans can have some connection to the characters, even though they are new versions with the same names, except for Doom, who was claimed to be the original Victor Von Doom. So are are they teasing the ultimate universe for Marvel at this time? That was much, much later. No, yeah, th- this is the 2099 universe, and that's, you know, really, you know, we, we saw the 2093 in right. uh, episode 9, we saw some of those sketches, and by this point of the Comic-Con, it was just about to debut, so this is kind of like teasing all of that, and the fact that Stan was back was like a big selling point at the time. I, I always looked at it like the way Stan explains it, where it's the current continuity, but in the future, or the current universe, but like Jim Shooter saying it's a new universe. I I never thought that way. I just thought it was like the future of our but, but Jim Shooter, and maybe that's where the confusion is. So he launched in the eighties the new universe, which was a whole separate brand inside Marvel that was yeah, it was kind of like the Ultimate Universe, except that it used no existing Marvel characters. It was literally like saying, what if there was an event that gave a bunch of people superpowers in the real world, and we'll deal with it. So there were all these random characters like Night Mask, and DP7, and Cyforce, and Kickers Inc. So they released this full line of comics, but nobody cared, because there wasn't any characters they'd ever heard of, and because it was set in the real world, they did it in, like, real time, So each time a new issue came out, a month of stories had passed that you didn't get to see. 
and then they would catch you up basically like this is what we've been doing for a month so that was like the premise behind he's like what if superheroes were real so that was the new universe it's funny in that you know statement of yours you just said nobody cared but yet adam knows everything about it of course (laughs) of course without question i'm fascinated with failure (laughs) i'm I'm sitting there and i'm like he just said nobody cared but he knows everything about it anyway Moving on, Stan closes by answering a question about the James Cameron Spider-Man movie, which he says is on hold because contractually Cameron has to complete another film before this project. What was that film? I mean, was it Terminator 2? But no, No, I mean, mean, that that was was coming out that year. I mean, that was out. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't even know, because, yeah, it, it seemed like this was just a perpetual thing at Marvel. They're talking up the Spider-Man movie over and over again, and it's just never happening. It's interesting, because in this issue, they mentioned that there was a, a Fox animated X-Men series coming up, right? And so that was happening. But I found a Stan Soapbox message from an issue of Nomad that was claiming that James Cameron was developing an X-Men cartoon. In addition to the Spider-Man movie, neither of which ever happened. So I, I have a, a fun little factoid for you. That Ravage 2099 pin. Yes. It is on eBay. It is two towns away from where I live. And it is $28. So it is a Firestar. Hey, and you could go pick it up. I might be getting this for you at some point in the future. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Alright, so now let's jump in just to, as we cover a few more of the articles and things that they because this is not a full-sized issue of Wizard. Like we say, it's a special edition. There's no price guide in it. There's none of that. It's literally just content essentially related to the con and then just in general. Like there's what's called a whirlwind tour of the history of superhero comics which is not as exciting as it sounds. It's just dates and issue numbers. This came out, then this guy had a book, and then this happened. You know, so there's that. There's another article called Discovering Underrated Talent, which is basically saying, you know, there's a lot of hype around image and everything else, but there's other books you should be checking out. Like I was talking about John Byrne's run on Namor, recognizing that Mark Silvestri may be the true star of image because he was such an unappreciated talent on X-Men for all the years and Wolverine and everything he did there. And people just kind of took him for granted. In fact, in the image documentary, in the image revolution todd mcfarlane and rob liefeld just flat out say mark silvestri was the best illustrator of any of us i mean that's putting him up against jim lee so they they were just like he had the natural talent also mentioned art thybert who is going to be taking over the x-men books greg capullo who pretty soon was going to be doing spawn uh, for todd mcfarlane when he kind of stepped away from the book after like a year greg capullo took over the art chores did he really i didn't i didn't know that yeah mcfarlane did it for a while but then it was just like a franchise and he just said greg you do it (laughs) and also greg eventually had his own teach you how to draw feature in Wizard, and so did Bart Sears at this time. So Bart Sears, they state, you know, he did Justice League International for DC and Eclipso, and that name pops up again. This newcomer, Joe Casada, you might want to keep your eye on him. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah really. you might. <laughs> I didn't send you these scans, Michael. I should have. But there's also a section on the hottest women of comics, whether it was the Marvel Swim 
swimsuit issue or whatever. So you got White Queen, and there's that infamous poster, I don't know if you remember it, of Mary Jane in a bikini and in Waterfall. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, I, I know that picture. I mean, I feel like they always put Mary Jane in, in a bikini. Like, it's just... Well, it was lingerie always in the maybe, comics. Maybe being a, a dad of two daughters and being in my later 30s has changed me, but I'm just like, when, when they make her super sexualized like that, I'm like, she's probably too attractive for Peter Parker. Even though she knows he's Spider-Man and everything, she's like way out of his league. <laughs> well, that was a lot of the storylines. She would, you know, have her soap opera, and then she had guys interested in her and all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, so that, that's just par for the course as to what's to come in Wizard. Uh, there's also an extended edition of Amazing Art featuring all those fan covers that have been submitted, but this is like a lot of them. I'm sure they were just using up their back stock of stuff they got. But there's like an epic Iron Man drawing. That I mean, that one looks like it belongs in a movie. Like, that looks like storyboard art. It's really dramatic. Like, at night, his blasters are lighting him, and it looks really cool. Uh, there's a Mysterio piece that actually makes Mysterio look pretty cool. There's Carnage, a drop-dead gorgeous painted She-Hulk, which I really love the look of that. I'd love to, I don't know if it's like airbrushed or what, but it's a really unique uh, art style. There's even an X-Gals cover, it's called, which is basically a rough sketch of a, an upcoming issue. There's there's an actual, you know, the ex-women cover that's going to be uh, showing up pretty soon here. So I don't know if they got the idea from that or it's just, you know, in the zeitgeist. Uh, there's also, in the end, there's a bunch of profiles on the big two publishers. Obviously, you got Marvel and DC and then the top tier independents. So Image and Dark Horse and even this other group, Tundra. And then, like, little profile blurbs for the all the top ten hottest artists we mentioned last issue with, like, John Byrne and whoever else. I assume that was meant to... To be a place also to get signatures probably my issue came polybagged so unfortunately i do not have a used copy that somebody got signatures in but the last thing i wanted to mention here that that just stood out to me there was an ad for a cd soundtrack album called supersonic flight and they say it was meant to listen to while you are listening or while you are reading your comics give motion picture excitement to your reading with the might and magic of a soundtrack quality CD to supercharge your senses. Ooh, I know. But it brings up a question to me then, Michael. Do you like listening to music when you read? And if so, what is your preferred soundtrack? The answer to that is no. Um, ah. Unless it's like something instrumental, like a soundtrack to like the Dark Knight trilogy, I, I might put that on, just kind of like low in the background. But I don't know. I, I get distracted if I have music on, or if I hear people with, if I hear lyrics, let's say, that would throw me off from from reading. Where if it's just something instrumental, I can tune. Like if I'm on the train, I'll put on like this is super nerdy, but like I'll put on you know the, the Dark Knight soundtrack and I'll read so this way I can tune out all the noise on the train but i can read and not be bothered back in the day there used to be a, a really great station on what was then just xm radio called cinemagic and it, hmm. and it played all the instrumental scores from like popular movies throughout the history and it was a lot of like john williams stuff and that was really cool like i put that on i had I one of those like serious xm adapter speakers i could put in anywhere at the time before you had it on your phone and i put that on and i'd sit there and listen and read because that was kind of cool it was a really cool station because i i like instrumental 
I don't want to hear lyrics. What about you? Yeah, so for me, like all through the 90s and early 2000s, I definitely just put on the same album every time, but it was the Prodigy's music for the jilted generation. And uh, so just techno music, you know, it has a few lyrics here and there, but ultimately it's just like really cool techno, you know, very cinematic in its scope. I mean, it, it was meant to be soundtrack music. And then lately, like, you know, in the last 10 years or so, I actually saw switched over to the Tron Legacy soundtrack. Oh, that's a good soundtrack. Yeah, so get my Daft Punk going there, and I enjoy that quite a bit. So this is totally off topic, but I have to ask this question. Speaking of, you know, soundtracks when we were kids, when you were, like, a kid doing your homework, did you have a soundtrack of music you'd play, or, like, a CD you would listen to, or a cassette? I have one. It was called the TV, and it's why I didn't get good grades in school. (laughs) I always did my homework in front of the TV, watching weekday afternoon cartoons, (laughs) Saved by the Bell. Oh, yeah. I used to have one of those old Sony boom boxes, you know, the one that you could actually either connect or disconnect the speakers to. And it only had two cassettes in it. There was no, this was long before CDs were, you know, standard in a boom box. And I used to listen to over and over again, Phil Collins' serious hits backwards and forward all the way. <laughs> every, I couldn't do my homework every night without listening to that album while I was doing it. And again, I don't know if I was actually doing good in my homework at the time or I was just jamming out to the music. Music while I was bum, 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 bum. Exactly. <laughs> That's pretty hilarious. But I digress. Anyway, back to Comic Con. But speaking of cinematic music, Michael, why don't you take us into Heroes in Motion? So, oddly titled article, Morphing Superheroes by Andy Mangles, is asking, why can't Hollywood make a good comic book movie? So, that's a really bold question back then, because Batman 89 was huge, Batman Returns had just come out, but anyway, I'll keep reading. He basically covers the entire history of all live-action superheroes, from the old black-and-white serials of Superman and Shazam, uh, television series like Wonder Woman and The Incredible Hulk, plus animated shows like 60s Spider-Man cartoons, which he points out had no hyphen in the title, or the fact that the Super Friends ran for 14 years under various names, and a final mention of the Flash TV series that was canceled after one season. Before I go on, the early Superman show is great. The serials are wonderful. I never saw the Shazam ones, but the the Wonder Woman show in the 70s is a great show. I don't know what he's talking about. And to not like the Incredible Hulk show? This guy is crazy. I, I think he was more covering the history, but it seems like from the perspective of the fans, it's more miss than hit. So there's been a lot of product and a lot of stuff that's come out over the years, but he seems to think that the fans are almost never satisfied well okay i don't know (laughs) you can't please everybody i guess but anyway i'll keep going mangles also suggests that initially hollywood lacked the technology to create the superheroic feats found in comic books and since traditionally comics were aimed at children it limited the audience appeal to fund a big budget feature he notes that 
people often blame the 60s Batman series for creating a stigma of goofiness for comic book shows. But from the 50s and 60s, Batman comics were actually, they were silly at the time. I, it was really the 40s where they were very, very dark. Then after the you know, late 70s and after Crisis on Infinite Earths when it gets dark again. He then claims that the fans of the books who know all the details of the source material are a very small portion of the audience and can never really be satisfied. Whereas the general public doesn't care if Dolph Lundgren had the skull in his shirt or not in the Punisher movie. <laughs> it's true. It is true. I, I, I cared. You cared. But most yeah. of people were like, Punisher? Uh, who? Uh, they wouldn't know he had a skull on his chest. They wouldn't know. To this day, if you ask somebody if they didn't watch the Marvel the Marvel Netflix show, do you know if Punisher has a, a skull in his chest? They're like, who's Punisher? That's what will happen. <laughs> so anyway, Mangles concludes that there are faithful adaptations like Captain America with low budgets that are bad movies, but then there are big budget features like The Rocketeer, or shows like The Flash that fail to find an audience despite being quality productions. Batman Returns is a box office hit, but it barely resembles anything from the comics, so it's very hard to be to satisfy everyone. Do you think this is accurate? Is it possible to have a faithful, big-budget film that works, or do you always have to tweak it for the mass appeal? Yeah, you know, like, I was thinking about this, because, yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, for the most part, a lot of the stuff that was mentioned, you know, at least comic book fans are fairly happy. But when you look at the big hits, you know, Tim Burton's two Batman films, they really kind of do stray from the source material. When you think about it, I mean, he made Joker kill Batman's parents, you know, and especially Batman Returns, where it's just like whatever he wanted to do. And yet they were very interesting. They were fun movies, but it wasn't like strict to the comics. You know, we didn't even in Batman 89, we didn't get a whole origin story. We didn't see Bruce Wayne sitting in a study and a bat flying through his window. You know, there was none of that. But then at the same time when they go super accurate, something like Watchmen with Zack Snyder where it's literally like panel for panel, except for the ending. Like, you say it's like, it's an accomplishment, but was it really interesting? Did people like it? Because only the fans who read the book, read the graphic novel, excuse me, really knew what he was doing and what an accomplishment that was. Otherwise, I don't, people just saw, like, a, a naked blue guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I look at it like this. There are certain things that are comic book tropes or essentials for a movie that should be there and if they're not there i'm a little annoyed by it at times i remember when sam raimi did the first spider-man movie i was like he's not gonna have web shooters they're gonna shoot right out of his wrist the, the spider webs and i was like but they're supposed to dissolve and, and they're supposed to go away and like you know he's supposed to invent that stuff that really bothered me before i saw the movie and then i kind of got over it by seeing the movie because i liked it so much i kind of think of the movie's in, in a way that's almost like an Elseworlds. Like, you can tell any story you want. Yeah, yes, it resembles certain things we you know, but Batman Begins is not page for page Batman Year One. It's, you know, it's a good representation of it, but it's a good idea of where it stems from. It's, it's almost like an amalgam of other stories combined. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's true. And I, I think ultimately, even if you look at the Marvel films, you know, the MCU films, they do make some changes for mass appeal. And we're still happy for the most part as comic book fans. Everybody kind of accepts what they do because the films are wholly entertaining. 
So let me piggyback onto that real quick. So here's something that I think most people don't know. I, I know the general public doesn't know. Infinity War, the whole Infinity Saga, right? The big movie was Infinity War and then Endgame. If you ever read the Infinity War book, it it's awful, but the Infinity Gauntlet is what the movies are based off of. And I find that so funny that nobody seems to care about that because the movies are so good and they're so grandiose and, and mm-hmm. gigantic. But I'm like, did you ever read Infinity War? It's not good. Infinity Gauntlet is the great book. That's the one everyone thinks of when they think of this story. But I, I thought that was kind of funny, and, and they kind of let that go. I also think that oftentimes fans are a little bit harsher on DC-related films than they are Marvel films, because even the X-Men movies, you know, a lot of people complain that, you know, even Steven makes a joke about it in his show, about Hugh Jackman being too tall, or the the black costumes, but could you imagine them wearing the yellow and blue in, in the movie? I think it would look ridiculous. It got overdone with the black costumes after time, but I, I'm okay with those kind of changes myself. That's just me. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I think it does come down to if they have created characters and the performances are there that we care about, that's ultimately what an audience responds to. And even the audiences that are fans, you know, you say, you know what? Yeah, it wasn't word for word, panel for panel, but it was such an entertaining film, it almost redefines the character if they make a good movie out of it. So I I do think that it does have to be changed, usually, just so there is that mass appeal, and I I generally don't also have a problem with that. I mean, you know, again, when it's like that character you're super precious about, and you love so much, you're like, oh, but this was so awesome, and you didn't do that part of the story, that type of stuff. Like, if you go to Infinity War, the whole idea idea of now okay thanos wants to you know save the universe because he couldn't save his own world and all that stuff it's like okay but it was so much cooler when he was just this guy who was obsessed with literal manifestation of death as a woman that he's trying to win her favor like that's so like twisted and weird like that would have been much cooler to see on the screen i think i think so too yeah, so there's like certain things they miss out on, but overall, I think, again, the characters are there, the entertainment value's there. Okay, let's go with it. So I have one last little thing to mention about this, and I just remembered it as we were talking about it. So when I went to go see Batman 89, my mother took me to the movie theater right at the school that day, and I asked her after the movie, I was like, wow, Mom, wasn't that movie awesome? Didn't you love it? And I remember her saying to me, yeah, it was cool, but... I wish that he had the, the a blue and gray suit like he did in the 60s. <laughs> and, and I was seven years old, and I'm like, but the black suit's so cool. And she, But she grew up in the 50s and 60s, and she watched, you know, the Adam West show, and, and she knew of Batman with, you know, the blue cowl, the blue cape, and, and the, the gray suit. And not until years later did I understand. I'm like, okay, that's what she knew as Batman. That's what she saw in her mind's eye. And then me, seven-year-old me, Michael Keaton in that black suit, that's what I saw as Batman. And it's just a different perspective because her seven-year-old self or her maybe 10-year-old self at the time and and me as a kid, it was just a totally different perspective based on our era of when we grew up and we were introduced to Batman or a live-action version of Batman. I know, and it's crazy. We've talked about this before, how that black suit, like, really never showed up in the comics. So it was like, it was in no. the movie, and we just accepted that as Batman in the movies. That's what he looks like. And it's just so strange that they really, they never even adapted, you know, they did, like, a, you know, a direct adaptation of the movie, but you didn't see for a run of issues, okay, Batman's in an all-black costume now. Yeah. 
Even still to this day, it's his suit is gray with black. It's just interesting. Well, now we're going to move out of the movies and into the card box. Yes, it's Gambit's deck of cards. So just real quick here, there is a whole feature in this magazine about Skybox International. And you guys, if you were collecting cards in the 90s, you probably remember Skybox. But if you look at those early editions of Marvel Universe trading cards, they were produced by a company called Impel. So that is actually Skybox. Just when they started getting super popular, like they were at this point, they were producing, you know, sports cards and things like that under the name Skybox. And then they just decided to make it their blanket brand but the reason is so because of marvel universe trading cards they basically they say here by successfully executing these licenses skybox has been able to lead the trading card industry into a new growth phase a phase which really came into its own in 1991 with the near tripling of entertainment card retail sales to over 200 million dollars research shows skybox has been successful in this effort according to a survey of over 40,000 households conducted for Skybox last October, 1.5 million Americans reported buying their first trading card, an entertainment card, within the previous six months. That represents nearly a 6% increase of the number of card collectors and fans in a six-month period due to entertainment cards alone. So basically they're saying like they produced, outside of Marvel, they were doing like G.I. Joe cards and Star Trek cards and Disney cards and like they just keep getting more and more and more successful uh, to the point where they're just like, now they're hyping, they're going to be releasing the Marvel Masterpieces line that were about to come out around this time. So I have a funny little aside. So this article is called Limited Editions. Did you ever watch HGTV or like, not really, or like QVC or Home Shopping Network back in the in 90s? Oh yeah, my, my mom loved it. <laughs> you remember a guy, he was always on late at night, he goes, limited edition i got limited edition baseball cards i got limited ed- and it was this, <laughs> this guy that i he oh i always liked to watch because he was so intense and he would scream it i got this limited edition baseball card here it's only worth you know blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and whenever i see that it makes me laugh i hear his voice he's like this real southern guy and it was, i don't know totally yeah that, that was a buzzword of the era for sure oh and yeah in fact, big time in that limited edition article it provides some contradictory information to what was previously reported in the Wizard of Cards section regarding the history of hologram trading cards that we presented because this article actually opens up by claiming that it was a pro set baseball card series that kicked off the trend in 1990, not Upper Deck. But that was what was previously reported. And in fact, that article goes on to increase the hype around Valiant Comics because they're stating that they are becoming collectible due to intentional low print runs and providing limited edition number zero comics only to comic book retailers who purchase their books at a certain volume and the author declares that quote harbinger number zero is the most desirable limited print run book 
ever. And, and that we joked in past episodes about Valiant Books being in 50 cent bins. But actually on social media, uh, Lamar the Revenger pointed out on Instagram, he said, by the way, guys, it's really hard to find most pre-Unity titles of Valiant, Solar, Harbinger, Ray, Magnus, Robot Fighter. Early issues are most definitely not in the 50 cent bins, which is true. Because as we've been reading about, Valiant was very consciously lowering the print runs you know in comparison to marvel for their big issues so that their books were more collectible but speaking of collectible comics michael let's check out the punisher's price guide a regular segment on the show where we compare the value of hot titles presented in Wizard Magazine, their price guide, with the current going rate on eBay within the last month leading up to this recording. A Firestar is a book that has risen significantly in value, and A Firestorm is a book that is value has not changed all that much, and A Burnout is a book that has dropped in value significantly. We are going to test out this theory by looking at the price of all the Valiant launch titles as listed in July 1992 in Wizard's Price Guide. Solar, the Man of the Atom, in 1992 was $5.75. Today, it is a whopping $12. So it, it's actually a Firestar. Go figure. Yeah. Shadow Man number one from 1992 was $5 then. And today, it is $20. So we've got another Firestar. That's pretty interesting. Adam's Boy, Exo Man Award number <laughs> one, was three fifty in 92. And today, it is $50. Is that graded? Woo! Is that graded or ungraded? These, these are all ungraded. Wow. Yeah. Harbinger number one in 92 was $12. Wow, it was $12 in 92? It was the hot book from Valiant, yeah. Wow, that's a lot of money back then. Today, it's $135 listed as a first appearance of Faith. It's actually a very good book. Like I bought it on Comixology and read it. I really, really liked it. Yeah, but I mean, like that—that's a significant jump for all the value of the other books. But it's because Faith is such a popular character now. Yeah, and that's where she started. So that's what I find so interesting is like all these other characters have been relaunched. Valiant, you know, has a whole new series of all these characters. You know, Bloodshot just got made into a movie with Vin Diesel. All of that. But this book is 135 bucks now, just because faith was in it and, and and her part isn't even that significant in it but it's like a funny comic relief in that issue and and it it adds a lot to the issue which is very cool harbinger number zero the most desired limited print run book of all time allegedly <laughs> not listed in 92 but today an ungraded copy is 89 dollars. i just found a, a 9.6 on ebay that's about 129 dollars 
Yeah, so I mean, the, the graded, it'll go up. Yeah, I mean, and that's what's crazy. So there's a pink version of yes. Harbinger Zero, and then there's that there's a, there's like a blue version, and that's not worth anything. Yeah, but the, the pink one was apparently, I think, the one that went to the retailers is how that worked. Yeah, the pink version is what I see here. I see a nine point six, that's one hundred and twenty, and a nine point four, that's a that's a hundred. There's one that has wow, this is kind of cool. So there's a there's a Guy that's selling graded of number one and number zero for two hundred dollars, both graded at, at a nine point two. You know, as as art goes for an independent comic or a, a a smaller organization than that of Marvel and DC, the artwork, especially in the Harbinger books, is beautiful. I really really liked it, and the stories are really well written. Yeah, and I I will say that Lamar and I, as we were going back and forth on on Instagram, the thing that was mentioned is he said pre Unity, which was their big crossover event, and that's true. So like kind of that first year of the books. Those are the rare ones. After the crossover event, and then they did another crossover event with Image that we'll get to eventually called Deathmate. Like, that's where they increase their print runs, and that's where those books were just ending up as toilet paper, basically. Ending up as toilet paper. Hey, in this year, they might need it. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Go to the 50 Cent bin, guys. Buy some comics. (laughs) Uh, But as we close out, I am so excited to open up the toy box for Asriel's Action Figure Fury. Now, this section, Brian Cunningham is a very special edition of Toying Around, and he mentions that ever since it was spoken of in Wizard Number 8, the popularity of creating your own action figure has been immense. From the day that issue hit the stands, I've received a tidal wave of photos from fans who've repainted and fooled around with existing figures and made other heroes who have had the misfortune of not having their own figures. At first, I showcased only one homemade figure in the regular Wizard magazine, but now one is simply not enough. And so this is a seven-page article just with pictures of all these custom figures. And this is what I'm so excited about. This is the official launch of Homemade Heroes. So the Homemade Heroes section, which was my favorite back in the day, I didn't realize it started in this special edition. And there are so many here. I mean, you got like, you know, a rogue figure before that existed. It was made out of a Toy Biz Wonder Woman. You got Bullseye made out of a Toy Biz Silver Surfer. And I'll tell you what's interesting is the most popular uh, base figure uh, that keeps coming up over and over again is either the Silver Surfer or the Toy Biz Flash figure. And I think it's because they're both just like bald. You know, they're like basic anatomy. But I I have to say the homemade figures portion of Wizard was my favorite too because I always thought it was so amazing that these people could detail paint these characters on top of other characters. When you sent me the scans for this, this was all I looked at for about two hours one day was these particular homemade figures. I was blown away by them because they are fantastic. Yeah, I mean, for you especially, there's that Justice Society of America. Somebody created, like, a few custom figures that mixed in some superpowers figures that were already, you know, existing. But I thought that was pretty great. The Justice Society one is fantastic. The Deathstroke is very cool. Your boy, the Tick, he's that looks really (laughs) cool. 
Made uh, out of a Venom figure. Somebody yeah. took a Venom figure and made the tick. Like, that's hilarious to me. My two favorites, and you'll probably laugh. The Guy Gardner is terrific, because you never see a Guy Gardner figure. Yeah. Uh, and that is really, really cool. Made from a superpowers Lex Luthor. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally. It's just, Works just, great, uh, though. Looks great. Like, really, really terrific. And, you know, my other favorite, favorite one was somebody did the original Nightwing costume. It is just awesome. Like, I can't believe it, that how it looks so good. I, I would have thought this was really, you know, professionally done. It's unbelievable. And the base toy was made out of the Riddler figure, which yeah. is just it blows my mind. Like, how do you even conceptualize that? I mean, at the same time, though, some of these, like, when, when anybody's doing a Toy Biz figure that had just come out, you understand. But there are people that were defacing superpowers figures. Like, somebody made a hawk of hawk and dove out of a superpowers Batman. And you're just like, no! <laughs> uh, but my absolute favorite, should come as no surprise, but somebody made a Punisher 2099 just out of a Toy Biz Punisher. But the reason it's awesome is it's based Based on the Punisher 2093 concept art that had just been featured in issue 9. And it's not even the final version, because on the back of this Wizard Special Edition, there's the future of Marvel Comics is now, 2099. And they show the actual Punisher 2099 design they decided to go with. So I just think it's hilarious that somebody made it based on a conceptual drawing that wasn't even the real character. And I, It would be great if that guy hung on to that figure. You know what I'm saying? Look Look on eBay for that, Michael. Let's see. <laughs> to churn that out so fast. I mean, you're talking about you know, a very short span of time between issue nine and then to have it in the Comic-Con special is is pretty amazing. Like, the person was talented. Yeah, really, really. Man, they were inspired. I mean, that's wonderful. So, yeah, there's a lot of other fun stuff in here. I mean, somebody made a Lobo. You know, there's a Kid Flash that actually looks great. Yeah, so there's, there's a bunch of cool figures like that. But, man, yeah, I mean, I know... There's so much more customizing that goes on these days. You just see it on Twitter. You know, people do some awesome stuff. But back in the day, just these early days with some model paints and some clay, people being uh, pretty impressive there. But, you know, that's about it. I mean, like I say, this is not a uh, heavy-duty issue, but it was packed with so much fun. And so our bonus podcast comes to a close. You know, there are a lot of conventions that got canceled this year due to the coronavirus from horror cons to RetroCons, and obviously San Diego Comic-Con, as we mentioned. They've actually been talking, I've heard a lot of whispers online this year that they're thinking about doing some sort of virtual San Diego Comic-Con and making it free, I've read, but who knows if that'll happen, but I've heard that's kind of been a whisper. A lot of them were actually launching for the first time this year, so that is rough, like these new conventions that were popping up and people were getting excited and didn't happen, but we hope that in the meantime, this smoothed over the hassle of getting your ticket refunds and the disappointment of those, you know, new con experiences that were lost for this year, but hey, you know, think about it positively, that just makes the next convention even more special when things kind of settle down and if there are vendors you like right check them out on instagram because there's a company that i follow called zenoscope they're based out of philadelphia and they do retellings of grimm's fairy tale characters in modern world and battling villains and stuff of like that but based around grim fairy tale and every weekend since the beginning of March, 
They've been doing virtual cons where they're like selling a lot of their art and books at a discounted rate. And a lot of different vendors are doing this now where they're doing these like virtual cons and they're doing like auction style stuff where you can, you know, live message them on Instagram or Facebook and, and buy stuff that you might be looking for and support your local comic book stores too because all, a lot of them are closed and, you know, fourth world by me, they're sending us daily emails and letting us know like what's new out and, you know, what a lot of places are doing if you really want to you know help them out call them up and see if maybe you can buy a gift card because like i know fourth world is selling for us if you want to buy a 50 dollars gift card you get 10 percent off so you're really spending 45 dollars you're getting a $50 gift card for them and they can keep the lights on for when things get better. Yeah, definitely. I got my stimulus check. I've been using it to buy a whole bunch of comics, I'll tell you. <laughs> in preparation for the show. And, you know, in the meantime, just keep telling your friends so that they can enjoy the fun. We got more bonus episodes coming. Episode 10 is just around the corner. We got plenty to talk about there. We got more guests lined up to join us and share their stories. But we thank you for listening thank you for being here with us so until next time keep your books bagged and boarded this has been a presentation of the retro network